What would you like to share with listeners today? Other ways of responding to harm. Liberation. This sound shield that you could take with you to protest. Collaborative dialogue. Demystify the process. Liberation loops. Hi, my name is Carly Beck and you're listening to Liberation Loops, a series that has been created from both my bedroom and from the 3CR studios on the lands of the Wandjeri and the Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. This is a series that dives deep into people's practices to challenge the criminal legal system. And through this series, I hope to discover in what ways people are already addressing violence in our communities and in what ways people are learning to heal from harm. Today, you're going to hear a conversation that I have with Anna Carlson. Anna is a co-founder and organiser of the Brisbane Free University, co-host of 4ZZZ's Radio Reversal and a freelance radio producer, illustrator, writer and community organiser. She is midway through her PhD, supervised by Dr Alyssa McCoon, Associate Professor Chelsea Bond, Dr Liz Strakosh and Dr David Singh. Her research examines the relationship between surveillance and colonial governance in so-called Brisbane, focusing on how surveillance functions to produce and maintain settler colonial regimes of possession, ownership and belonging. Welcome, Anna. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's, a, it's an honour. So you're currently um, doing your PhD and it explores the relationship between colonial governance and surveillance. Can you tell listeners a little bit about this work that you're doing um, and what has drawn you to doing this work? Yeah, absolutely. So my PhD kind of, as you said, it kind of looks at the relationship between surveillance and colonial governance and particularly focusing on how surveillance functions to produce and reproduce settler colonial regimes of possession, of ownership and belonging. And I do this through a kind of deep investigation of surveillance in my home city of, of so-called Brisbane on Yagara country in, in Queensland. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in surveillance because for me it represents this really interesting intersection between a bunch of political and legal processes that I have been thinking and and writing and talking about for a few years. So it kind of brings together these legal regimes of policing and incarceration, along with normative ideas about belonging, about safety, threat, who is understood as a risk, who is understood as, um, as belonging. And then couples these with these kind of ideas about efficiency, about neutrality, about scientific progress and objectivity. Um, so for me, as, as a white settler who has lived on Yagara country for, for quite a while now, thinking about surveillance has also been, like in, in some ways, about thinking seriously about colonial complicity, about the ways that um, folks like me, particularly white women, are enlisted through surveillance in the maintenance of colonial regimes. And so, yeah, I think my, my work kind of sits in that in that intersection between thinking about the intensification of the carceral state, thinking about dynamics like gentrification and um, kind of settler nation-building projects, um, and thinking about how all of these wrap around these kind of rich political ideas of, of safety, of belonging, um, and of, uh, of possession. 
Yeah, and I'm really glad that we're having this conversation. So now we're up to episode seven of Liberation Loops. And I think that we only really spoke about surveillance in the first episode when I was having a conversation with Bridget Chappelle. And they talked about the um, uh, terror alert speakers that the uh, Victorian government put in place a few years ago. And that was coupled with CCTV that was rolled out across Melbourne CBD. And then they also spoke about drones um, and how how technology progresses much faster than uh, legislators can keep up with. Um, And so I'm glad that we're having this conversation um, now about surveillance. But what do you understand surveillance to mean? Um, And how does surveillance intersect with policing and prisons? Yeah, so on the the first part of that, and I think those examples from Bridget are are really rich rich ideas to think through. So on the the first part of the question, so how do I understand surveillance? The definition that I draw most often in my research comes from a guy called David Lyon, um, who's like a fairly prominent surveillance theorist. But I actually came across his work through one of the first surveillance scholars I read, um, a black feminist theorist who you and I have talked about before, Carly, called Simone Brown, whose book Dark Matters on the Surveillance of Blackness is kind of the text that kicked off my my interest in or thinking about surveillance. So David Lyons, Simone Brown and a bunch of other people, they draw on this idea that surveillance has two elements, that it requires the gathering of data or information about a person or a population and the use of that data as a means of controlling or regulating that person or population. So obviously that's a super broad definition, but for me, I think that that breadth is really useful because one of the really important things that I've, I've kind of noticed as I've done this research on surveillance here in so-called Brisbane is that rather than being about individual technologies or techniques or um, specific projects, surveillance is fundamentally about a power relationship. So nearly any act of, of seeing, gathering information, taking photographs, fingerprinting, tracking movement, drawing a map, whatever it is, right, can be an act of surveillance if the power relation between the seer and the scene is such that the information produced can be used to control or govern or regulate them. At the same time, outside of that power relation, those things aren't necessarily acts of surveillance, right? So for me, it's not so much about the the act or the technology, but the function that it serves. And so I think that kind of links into the question of how surveillance intersects with policing and prisons, because for me, the answer is these are inextricable techniques of governance. Um, I don't know how, how deep we, we can really go here, but one of the, the folks who's kind of really associated with thinking through surveillance is the French critical theorist Michel Foucault, whose book Discipline and Punish is uh, this kind of deep investigation of the relationship between um, between forms of of policing, imprisonment and surveillance and broader technologies of governance. Um, But one of the, like, the kind of key things that I think comes out of Foucault's work is is the idea that that surveillance is inextricably connected to broader projects of policing and imprisonment. Um, And in some ways he talks about surveillance as the kind of, um, it's almost like the kind of perfection of policing and, and imprisonment. Uh, where the, the prison walls become um, transparent, but the, the project, the logics of imprisonment remain the same. Um, but I think for, for me, I guess, um, I guess the, the, 
it, thinking about the relationship between policing prisons and surveillance in a settler colonial context, there's a couple of probably useful distinctions. Um, one is that, like, from that definition of, of surveillance as the gathering of data about a person or a population in order to control or regulate them, I think we can kind of see that surveillance functions at, like, multiple scales at once, depending on which person or population is being surveilled. So, as I said at the beginning, in my research, I'm primarily interested in surveillance that functions at the scale of the settler state, right, that functions as um, a means of producing and reproducing this population that is... Um, the settler colonial state. But in the case of policing and prisons, it's also worth recognising that surveillance also functions in way more targeted ways, right? Like it, it functions as a way of gathering data about a specific person so that you can do specific things to that person. So you can charge them with a crime, you can detect wrongdoing or whatever. Um, and so I think that one of, the, one of the things that is, yeah, or maybe a good example of... Um, of a kind of intersection between these, like, big-scale projects of surveillance that are used to discipline a population and these kind of targeted projects of surveillance that are used by the police are things like the New South Wales Police Suspect Target Management Plan, which is now in its second iteration. So this is this, like, I don't know whether your listeners will know much about this, but it's this incredible kind of minority report-esque policing project that... Uses, um, uses data, uses an algorithm to identify young people who are understood to be at a high risk of committing crime and then targets those young people for intensified police surveillance. So things like they can be stopped at any point um, to be... They are always understood as suspicious, basically. So they can be stopped at any time to be questioned, to be searched. Um, their, their houses can be searched, etc. So this this... Yeah, it's terrifying, right? And this the suspect target management plan, I think, kind of brings together multiple scales of surveillance because within it we can see from the data that's been gathered about it already that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people and young people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds are disproportionately overrepresented as the sus as suspect, right? As people who are read uh, by the police as likely future offenders. And so I think within those kind of examples, we see like both of those scales of surveillance um, coming together into a single um, policy platform that is still underway, that the New South Wales police still use. Mm. Yeah, um, and I think that that people use people's previous kind of like track records or um, histories as then foreseeing the future. Um, and that's kind of what police do when they do those stop and searches and they, mm-hmm. yeah, um, pull up, you know, marginalised people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on the street to see if they do have those previous, um, you know, criminal history track records. Um, and I do see, yeah, like the police and also you know, corrections prison officers um, being the foot soldiers and using technology in these ways to surveil people. Um like, I think that, that that really speaks to the element of surveillance that is um, really dystopian because it's often framed as preventative. And so we see this both with, with um, stuff like CCTV, like your conversation with Bridget was speaking about. Um, CCTV cameras are often um, justified by the folks who want to implement or want to add more of them as being technologies that will help uh, the police to intervene before crimes occur, 
So that's fascinating, right? Like, what the hell are the police intervening in if no crime has yet occurred? Basically, it means that there is a kind of established idea of what constitutes risk, who is read as suspect, who seems like they don't belong in a space, and the police are called on to um, remove those people before they become the threat that they are read as, as already as always already being. Um, and so I think that that element of prevention means that we have to talk about norms, we have to talk about who is constructed as being threatening or dangerous or, uh, or a threat to public safety. Um, and all of those things mean we have to think about power relations. And now turning to the present, um, Arundhati Roy in a recent online teaching said that if we were walking into a surveillance state, now we are panic running into it. Um, what are the extra surveillance tools that the state is using in so-called Australia to address the pandemic? Um, and what are your main concerns with the surveillance technology that is currently being employed? Yeah, so I mean, this is such a um, this is such a like interesting and horrifying moment. My my very good friend Bryony Walker has a great line about things that are terrible for the world but great for our PhDs, and I feel like this moment has definitely been been one of those for me because the responses to COVID nineteen have been um, have been heavily reliant on accelerated forms of surveillance. Um, one thing that I think is probably worth noting is that um, one of the tools that I think we get from, like, you know, critical prison abolition theory is moving away from ideas of good and bad. And I think that's quite useful in thinking about surveillance too because actually surveillance is infrastructural to, um, to policy making. So this idea of evidence-based policy is basically a form of surveillance. Um, so... I think that's kind of worth noting because particularly in conversations about COVID-19, I think we get stuck in this space where people are endlessly saying, yep, but we have to do this because people are vulnerable to COVID-19 uh, and so we need to address, um, you know, we need these surveillance measures because otherwise people will get sick. Um, and so I think we get stuck in these kind of moralistic conversations about whether the surveillance measures are justified rather than the conversation that I'm much more interested in, which is what is going to happen when the pandemic ends. So anyway, that's jumping forward a little bit. But basically, um, COVID-19 has provoked like a pretty intense acceleration in surveillance, but really just more of the same, right? So we've seen added police presence, the redeployment of folks who were ticket inspectors on public transport to act as um, kind of essentially as police officers with some limited powers, um, but to police particularly breaches of the COVID-19 health regulations, um, as well as seeing like an accelerated graduation of folks from the police academy. So basically a, a more intensified police presence. At the same time, we've also seen a, a, this, this kind of additional COVID-19 hotline where community members are encouraged to call in to report their neighbours or members of the public who they perceive to have been breaching COVID-19 um, regulations. Um, there's also added scrutiny in the health system itself. So folks who are um, presenting at hospitals are asked extra questions. There are these added layers of um, data being gathered about people's movement, etc. Um, added surveillance measures like biometric measures, so temperature testing, all of that kind of stuff at, at airports, um, as well as in, in hospitals. Um, but perhaps the most prominent and, and certainly the most um, resonant new surveillance technology at the moment is the COVID-SAFE app, which has been rolled out in the last couple of weeks. 
um, and which basically seeks to digitise the process of contact tracing, which um, which the the government and most governments have been using, have been doing manually up until this point. So people who uh, contract COVID-19 or test positive for COVID-19 uh, are asked then to provide a list of people that they've spent more than um, 15 minutes with in the last two weeks. Uh, and then that, those, that list of people is followed up. The government is seeking to automate that process by rolling out the COVID Safe app, which digitally tracks um, through what I'm, I'm not a um, I'm not a technologist, nor do I really understand how how the app works. But most of the the accounts so far are that it's super clunky. It's a really clunky mechanism to do this um, this contact tracing. You have to have the app um, like switched on in your phone. It can't work in the back background. Uh, and there are a bunch of other, like, you know, actual technological concerns about how it works. Um, but that's kind of the, the main conversation about surveillance now is a conversation about the COVID safe app. I think the part of your question was my concerns about it, right? So I think, I guess I have kind of two answers to that. The first is really material, which is that um, the accelerated um, the, the kind of surveillance by police has already um, led to... I think in Queensland, about 1,600 breach notices have been um, have been issued. Um, early data gathered by Osman Faruqi for the Saturday paper in relation to New South Wales has suggested that the that a, a disproportionate number of breach notices have been issued in uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander or areas with a high Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population, a high population of folks of colour. Um, so we're kind of already seeing how these surveillance measures are accelerating existing political dynamics here that have really violent and disastrous consequences. In terms of the the app, um, and I, I guess my deeper concerns are that um, these ideas of, of crisis and emergency have re- have a really long history in being used to justify and usher in new technologies. So. The most recent and I think probably useful example is that the Northern Territory intervention into Aboriginal communities, which is widely understood as an an incredibly violent intervention, Mm. um, was justified on the grounds of a public health and um, policing crisis, right? It was represented as a crisis um, that justified this kind of um, massive emergency, this swathe of emergency measures that was introduced under the... um, under the Northern Territory Emergency Response Legislation, um, you know, introduced late at night uh, with very little scrutiny and that has had really well recognised now disastrous consequences on the ground. And so I think that the idea that that this is a kind of new or unprecedented moment where we're seeing these ideas of, of crisis and emergency used to justify technologies that we might otherwise have been like, oh, I don't know, that doesn't seem necessary, that seems a bit, it seems like maybe we don't really want the state to be tracking our movement in that way, um, is really troubling for me. It reflects a much deeper dynamic and one that I think we have to be really cautious of. Yeah, I think, yeah, your thoughts about, you know, the military kind of response um, yeah, in the Northern Territory intervention has, yeah, like also like materially kind of um, evolved here as well. So down here in Nam, um, you know, a few weeks ago, there were police helicopters flying above my house. These are really, um, 
I think that there's a real under, like, I guess, particularly mainstream reporting, I think there's been a real underestimation of the violence of these responses, right? Like, they are, um, the fact that they are wildly uneven, you know, that you have these kind of tight regulations on some things and then really loose regulations on other things. So, for those of us living in Queensland, for example, uh, we're seeing the relaxing of some of the quarantine rules now. And so retail shopping is like the first thing that opens up. And I think there are these these moments where you can kind of see the sets of values that underpin um, decision-making. Uh, but you can also see what is consistently left out and overlooked in these processes. And so I think not only does COVID-19 have, as, as an illness, have a disproportionate impact on folks who have um, who have experiences of uh, intergenerational um, the kind of intergenerational violence of um, of a healthcare system that continues to be institutionally racist. You also have response measures that once again disproportionately target marginalised communities. And so the the dynamic for me that's interesting is like that stuff is all happening at the same time as you have these political justifications that are talking about these emergency measures as um, as necessary, as important, as like these kind of virtuous projects for the common good. Um, you have folks like invoking this idea that you have to do your bit for Team Australia and that downloading the app will, will in, in Scott Morrison's words, will let us get back to the pub quicker. Mm. So, you know, you have these these ideas of, of settler nationalism, these kind of deeply, um, deeply rooted ideas about what it means to be an Australian being invoked here as a way to, to kind of invisibilise and obscure the violence that these responses are really doing. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like herd immunity via technology is kind of um, what's being pushed um, as being, yeah, like the solution to keeping us safe during this pandemic. Totally, right? And, I mean, with with the same, um, with the same like, sets of violence that are associated with ideas of herd immunity in general, but with the additional, like, dynamic that most folks who engage with the actual uh, questions of the, the technology are, like, one of the biggest threats here is that people are treating downloading the app as though it keeps them safe from COVID-19. Like, it, it does absolutely nothing to keep you safe from COVID-19. All it does is automate the process of contact tracing, sort of, you know? It's like this is not a panacea, but this this kind of rhetorical justification of the app as something that will, yeah, get us back to the pub faster mm-hmm. is um, is doing all of this work to make it seem like all we have to do, all we have to do is download this app and then this will all be over. Um, and I think that's really dangerous. And, I mean, you were saying this um, earlier on in our conversation as well, where, you know, this kind of legislation is always brought in in moments of crisis and I think also particularly in the name of health and safety. So last year we saw the Australian government introduce My Health Records, um, which is an online database cataloguing people's medical histories. And I mean, people in the community had to be socially and politically engaged to know that they had the option to actually opt out of that scheme. Um, And police under the My Health Records Act can access people's medical information that is recorded on my health records. So how often do we see surveillance used in the name of health and safety? Yeah, I think 
like all the time, right? And certainly the um, the research that I've done tracks the relationship between surveillance and colonial governance in Brisbane historically. So the first chapter of my research looks at surveillance under the so-called Protection Act in, in Queensland. Um, and so it kind of, so turn of the 20th century, like late 1800s, early 1900s. And one of the things that is really striking is that um, is that surveillance is a represented as a, a project of reforming uh, the violence that came before it. So this is represented as a kind of progressive move forward into a future free from um, the violence of the frontier. But also that it's represented as um, as a way to care for a vulnerable population. In this case, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are um, in at this period of time. Um, contained under the, the Protection Act, this in, intensely violent set of regulations that governed almost every aspect of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander life at the time, or attempted to. Of course, they didn't. Of course, people always have um, autonomous lives and resist in various ways, but that was the goal of the Act, was to heavily surveil and regulate people's lives. And so even then, right, you have these discourses of, um, of health, of ill health, being um, operationalised to justify this intensive state, state control um, based on the surveillance of Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, so, and I think that, that that carries all the way through. Um, these ideas of, I think part of the reason that COVID-19 has been so, so striking is because you've seen this idea of public health coupled with these these kind of um, really like politically laden ideas of the common good, of civic responsibility, you know, of doing your bit for the community. Um, and this has been really powerful, I think, in motivating a lot of people who might otherwise have been quite sceptical of these kind of state apparatus to um, acquiesce to being made complicit in um, something like the COVID Safe app. And I think this is this is really dangerous because I think what it speaks to is how, and I think your your comment about how the my health record required that people be really meaningfully politically engaged in order to opt out. I think that the the idea that um, that people often often use like oh but COVID safe is voluntary like no one has to uh, no one has to sign up and that's absolutely true. But when you have government discourses saying this is a moment for Team Australia, you know, this is a moment to do your bit for the community. The morally righteous thing to do is to download the app. Um, then you have that coupled with uh, retail institutions saying that they are not going to allow people who haven't downloaded the app to enter their stores, right? You have the, the increased threat that it will be used as a condition of entry to particular spaces. Well, then people aren't really... Uh, it's not really a voluntary decision, right? It's coercive as hell. Thinking too about um, how the government is kind of like pushing this on people as being this is, you know, good. Like what you were talking yeah. about before, that discourse that, that abolitionists push against where there's a division between good and bad. Um, and really the government's saying if you download this app, then you're a good person. And then if when people are, you know, it would be interesting to see who's actually taking up this app because I imagine the people that are taking it up aren't thinking that there's going to be negative consequences for them, um, that they're going to be, you know, surveilled and criminalised um, for, you know, taking up this app and then potentially, you know, spreading this virus. And I guess, like, you know, those people aren't thinking about, you know, pushing back against um, all of the technology used by police to, I guess, what we talked about before, stop and search people 
Yep. And this is why I think that, like, for me, the idea of thinking about complicity has been so useful because one of the things that I've seen people um, people's responses to COVID safe and the question of whether they should download it, one of the, particularly on social media where I've been having these conversations a little bit, um, one of the really common um, pieces of, or one of the really common responses that I've seen um, is enclosure of a conversation about COVID safe, a conversation about privacy, which I think you alluded to a bit earlier, where the conversation becomes a contest between individual privacy rights and some kind of amorphous concept of the common good. And I think what we're, what we're seeing is all of the things, or certainly what my, my research has been interrogating, is all of the political relationships that are obscured when we let conversations about surveillance be conversations about privacy. Um, because A, privacy is already in and of itself a political construct, but also one of the only ways that surveillance can function is through the production of a norm. So when you have a group of people saying, but actually I'm not personally worried about my data being used, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing anything wrong, so I don't have anything to fear from being surveilled, um, choosing to take up these technologies, what you're also seeing them do is produce a baseline against which people's refusal to take up the app will be measured, which means once again you're seeing folks who are insulated, largely folks who are insulated from state violence, being incorporated into the maintenance of a regime that disproportionately impacts folks who are sceptical of the state, right, or sceptical of the state's motivations, um, or in some way maybe don't believe that this technology won't be um, continued or accelerated now that it's been implemented and normalised under this kind of so-called emergency. Well, thank you so much, Anna, for joining us today on Liberation Loops. Oh, this, it's been such a pleasure. I'm so glad I just rambled at you for, um, for 40 minutes about all of my thoughts. <laughs> And just then, that was a conversation that you heard between Anna Carlson and myself about how surveillance operates in the settler colony, as well as all of the ways that surveillance is being used amidst COVID-19. And join us back here next week um, to hear a conversation that I have with Simon Clough from Brook Red about community responses to mental health. See you then.